Last summer and Advent, if you were here, you may recall that we preached through uh, various lives of the kings of Israel, and we called this series Shadowlands. Uh, We're now in what the church calendar calls ordinary time, and with this change of season, we're going to begin a new series called Shadowlands 2, uh, Entering the Shadowy of Shadows, or how about uh, the Shadow Looms. Uh, Over the next 11 weeks, we're going to explore uh, terrible subtitles like that, but we're also going to be looking at the uh, tension between the first two kings of Israel, King David and King Saul, and what God has to say to us through the lives of these two very different kings. This week, however, before we can look at the life of King David or King Saul, we have to understand a little bit about Israel's political history. Yes, you're getting a poli-sci class on a Sunday morning, but it'll be quick. Uh, the uh, The nation of Israel didn't always have a king. Before there was a throne in Israel, there were judges. And this era, this historical era, is in a book aptly titled Judges in the Old Testament. And you can learn all about these judges. During uh, the centuries that made up this period, the nation of Israel constantly took wrong turns. They constantly rejected God. They constantly tried to assimilate into the nations around them. But over time, these nations would oppress them. And so the nation of Israel would cry out and say, God, help us. God, deliver us. The book, it has this ominous refrain, though. When things are getting bad, it says, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And what appears to be right in the eyes of the people gets progressively worse and worse and worse. And yet they would cry out, Lord, help us. Now, when the Lord would help, the, the scriptures are clear. It is God who would raise up a judge for them. It is God who would send his spirit to rest upon someone to deliver them. And God would do this over again, even when he knew the next generation is just going to fall away. And so they would repeat this cycle again and again and again. When you hear the word judge, I understand many of you are thinking of, you know, someone in the, 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 the white uh, dreadlocks and uh, robes in a courtroom, but that's not what you should be picturing because that's probably not accurate anyways. But uh, judges in Israel's time, their work wasn't primary, primarily legal. They were deliverers. They were even, you could say, saviors of the people. They were military leaders who would fight against God's enemies. And this, you have to understand, was their system of governance for 400 years. 400 years. That's a lot longer than Canada. This was how things worked. Samuel, the book that we're reading, uh, is largely about the prophet Samuel, and he was the last judge of Israel. And as I said, he was a prophet, but he was also a priest. And he was one of the very best judges Israel ever had. And yet toward the end of his life, Israel decides they no longer want to live under the old system. They want something new, something more, uh, you know, social media friendly. And so they say, look, we want a king. Hook us up with the king, Samuel. And although the scriptures don't explicitly say this, they expect us to infer this. The people of Israel are once again doing what is right in their own eyes. So before we can appreciate the tension between David and Saul, we must first understand the tension between the true king of Israel, God himself, and the earthly throne that they're asking for. So this is the big idea that we're going to explore this morning. Uh, Write it down or write it on your hearts. It's through rejection that God prepares salvation. It's through rejection that God prepares salvation. 
So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to 1 Samuel chapter 8. If you don't own a Bible, everything's going to be on the screen. Or if you want, you can take one of our gray Bibles home with you. It's yours. 1 Samuel chapter 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Now, if you've been tracking with the first eight chapters of Samuel, this is suddenly a punch in the stomach. Things have been going so well. And then all of a sudden, his heirs, the people who are supposed to lead the nation once he dies, they're not walking in his ways. It continues in verse 4. Then all of the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, which I'm sure felt great, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. At first glance, nothing seems off kilter here. You know, the elders of Israel are concerned. They're looking for a solution. So they band together and say, Samuel, you're getting old. Your sons are corrupt. Set us up with a better system. Give us a king. This doesn't appear that bad. They've complained even. Hey, your sons do not walk in your ways. They don't follow God like you do. But you'll notice that they don't say, Samuel... Raise up for us someone who's faithful to God, who loves God like you do, who will lead us toward God. You'll see that's not their concern at all because they put their cards on the table. They say, give us a king so we can be like all the nations. To break it down simply, here's what's happening. Here's the problem, and here's our solution, which is going to make it even worse. And this personifies the human condition of doing what is right in our own eyes. The problem is that what often appears right to us is deeply flawed and often wrong. And I know this runs against the grain of how we're taught to see ourselves. Uh, You know, we like to think if someone has access to every piece of relevant information, if they don't forget things, if they evaluate their choices soberly, they're going to make the best decision based on their options. This is how we're trained to see each other. But the more psychologists and even economists examine the relationship between decision-making and happiness, the more they have discovered that this is not true of humanity. You can have all the information in the world and still make a terrible decision for yourself. Take the choice, for example, of how far to commute in your day-to-day life. To commute or not to commute? That is the question for many of us. And because of the housing crisis, you know, unaffordable rent, the impossibility of home ownership in the city, people often choose the commute because houses are more affordable outside of the city. They have, you know, they're bigger and they have what's called a yard, you know, for you city dwellers. A yard is your very own piece of public green space that you get to maintain and mow. I hear it's amazing. And it's easy to think, it's easy to think that owning a home will balance out the commute. But so many studies are finding that people with a long commute, like an hour or more, face higher financial burdens, higher blood pressure, they get more headaches, they frustrate easier, and they tend to be grumpier, which we all know, when they get to their destination. The longer the drive, the less happy you will be, unless you're just weird and like driving. Then you're all good. On top of this, studies are showing the bigger 
the home, the more demands it creates both upon your time and your budget. So not only is your commute eating up your time and money, but this house that's supposed to be making it better is eating up your time and your money too. Two economists at the University of Zurich, this is the library, I want to go there, uh, discovered, and this is really interesting, they discovered that a person that has a one-hour commute has to earn 40% more money to be as satisfied with life as someone who can walk to work. And their study concludes that in every area, commuting is making people's entire lives worse. Physical and mental health suffers. uh, Relationships and friendships all suffer. And yet, when people were confronted with the results of this study, they didn't change anything about their lives. When confronted with a problem, we're prone to come up with a solution that makes things worse. Returning to the elders in the, in the passage here, essentially they said, your sons don't walk in your ways and we don't want to either. We want to be like the nations. And this is the fundamental problem in the book of Judges. They're saying, we don't want any change. But from their inception, it was understood that Israel, they were chosen by God. They were to be his people. They were supposed to be distinct and peculiar. They're supposed to walk by God's ways and be a light of God's grace and love into the world. They were supposed to be looked at and thought to be a little different and odd. And yet now we see Israel wants no difference. They want no peculiarity. They want to assimilate and be like all the nations around them. They don't want to be distinct or noticeable anymore. But behind this is a basic human emotion, fear. The elders are saying, yes, we've heard what God has done for our ancestors. We've heard about the Exodus. We've heard how he delivered us. We've heard the stories of the judges. Samuel, we have even seen you deliver us in our lifetime, but that was many years ago. We are not sure God will do it yet again for us. And if we jump ahead to verse 20, they admit, hey, we want a king to go out and fight our battles. You see, they feel too vulnerable waiting on God to lead them, waiting on God to deliver them. They would rather trust in their human strength alone. They're afraid God can't do it, that God can't provide, and so they take matters into their own hands. So the elders, they bring this request to Samuel, and we read in verse 6, The thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. The elders are displeased. They perceive a problem. They come up with a solution. Samuel is displeased. And what does he do? He goes straight to God in prayer. He doesn't take any action without consulting God. He's a mature prophet. He feels displeasure. He feels angry even at what they're doing. And yet he does not de facto assume that this is how God feels towards his people. And so he goes to God in prayer before responding to the people of Israel. And so the text is asking us, where's the first place you go? Google? A friend? Or the Lord? When you feel something, when you feel strongly about a direction, do you just assume God feels the same way or do you turn to him and ask? The scene changes and then we join Samuel in conversation with God. Look at verse 7 through 9. 
And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they're doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who will reign over them. The problem is not so much that Israel desires a throne. The problem is that Israel doesn't want their true king to sit on the throne. You see, the request of Israel is absurd. They have a king. The Lord their God is their king. But then God says explicitly to Samuel, look, Samuel, buddy, this isn't about you. This is about me. And this is how they've always treated me. They've always rejected me. He says, ever since I delivered them out of Egypt, they've always rejected me. This is their pattern. This is their disposition. So give them what they want. Do what they say. Obey their voice. And that should terrify us. They, want, they think they know what's right in their eyes. And we have a whole book to show that what, what is right in their eyes is awful. And now God is saying, instead of obeying my voice, obey their voice. You can imagine the terror for Samuel in this. And there's a quiet sorrow here. The Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann suggests there is for God, as for Samuel, a wistfulness and deep sadness. Something precious is being forfeited in Israel, and Israel seems not to even notice. There's heartbreak in this passage, and we'll see it come out. But Samuel, he does what God instructs. He returns to the people, and he warns them about what they're signing up for and requesting a king. Look at uh, verse 11. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He'll take your sons and appoint them to chariots and to his horsemen and run to the chariots, and he'll appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He'll take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He'll take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchids and give them to his servants. He'll take the tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. He'll take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and even your donkeys, and put them to work. He will take a tenth of your flocks. And there's nothing of surprise here. This is what you would expect of a monarchy. One scholar writes, it's simply a statement of fact. The monarchy in Israel, as elsewhere, lives by confiscation and concentration of wealth and land. It lives for the sake of acquiring such things. But pay close attention to what... Samuel says next in verse 17 and 18. Underline it. You shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you've chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. You see, Samuel builds it up. He says, here's all the stuff the king is going to take, but here's the true cost of rejecting God as your king. You will be slaves. And this should fill their hearts with dread. You have to remember, they live in the collective memory of being the people of Egypt, being delivered out of there, the exodus. 
And God is saying, when you reject me, you are going to return to a pre-Exodus state. You are going to be slaves yet again. It doesn't matter if it's Pharaoh or one of your own kings. If you reject life with me, it is slavery, says the Lord. Choosing a new king over the true king. Choosing what others uh, say to make you feel secure. Following the ways of those around us rather than God's written word. All of this is like Israel. They have the true king. They have the living God. They have the maker of all of heaven and earth protecting them and providing for them. And they say, nah, there's something more appealing. You see, it minimizes who God is and what he's done for them. And it's flippant and it's dismissive and it's hurtful because you can't be more secure than walking with the living Lord. And Samuel warns, when you choose something else, when you choose something else, it will become your master and you will become its slave. Don't we do this? We want security without reaching out to God. We hear people saying, this will make you feel secure, and we follow them. At the moment, the bane of my existence are a seemingly innocent collection of Disney figurine princesses. And they were a thoughtful gift uh, to Ansley and Maggie to teach them how to share. And to be fair, it has taught them how to share. And it's also taught them how to fight. But now, Maggie will not go anywhere without them. She can name them all. Snow White, Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, Ariel, Belle, Jasmine, Pocahontas, Mulan, Tiana, and Rapunzel. She can say all of their names, and she still can't say Alistair. You would think Pocahontas, <laughs> Alistair, not a big jump. Now, many of these princesses carry subversive messages about women that I find trite and disempowering. That alone is reason enough to reject them, but I loathe them at the moment for greater reasons than this. They've become Maggie's security blanket. She just loves them. She'll take her little paws and try to hold as many of them as she can at a moment, at least four. If she wakes up from a nap, she will not get out of the crib unless she's got her posse of princesses. If we try to leave the house, she's got her princesses. If she drops one, she starts to wail until we help her. If we can't find one, she wails until we help her. She will not leave the house without her princesses. And just the other day, Julia said, I think these things give her more grief than joy. Now, these little figurines, they can do nothing to secure Maggie in the real world. They're an illusion. They're a safety blanket. Only Julia and I can grant that sort of security to her with the grace of God. So the question that we must ask ourselves is, what do we fill our hands with so that we can feel secure? Your job your reputation, your looks, your relationship, your family, your bank account and investments, a politician. And when we hold these things in our hands to gain security, do we weigh the actual cost? The elders of Israel, they desire a king. They freely choose it, but they will become slaves to their king. You see, they choose this king because they're worried about becoming slaves to the other nation. And so they're willing to even give up some of their freedom, but they're ultimately becoming the thing they feared they would become, slaves. This is the great trick of sin. 
It allures us with freedom or even security, and then it takes it away. And sin, it almost effortlessly tricks us. Because when presented with a problem, we are prone to choosing solutions that are even worse than the original problem. You see, the moment we place anything above God to find our security in the world, our security at best will be temporary. Because jobs can be lost, reputations can be tarnished, uh, looks fade, relationships end, bank accounts and investments fluctuate and can disappear. In an instant, politicians lose off. And when these things have our ultimate loyalty, they will cause us more grief than joy. Because we'll pour out our energy, we'll pour out our time, we'll sacrifice to attain whatever it is we think we have to have to be secure. But as a result, we end up giving up much of our freedom. Whatever we hold in our hands become secure, enslaves us. Are you looking to human solutions instead of looking to the God who is eternal. And there's a cost beyond slavery too. One chapter earlier in chapter 7, verse 9, Samuel cries out on behalf of Israel and God answers. And this cry answer is central to Israel's faith. All throughout the Judges, we see this happen. But now Israel is warned that when they cry out, God won't answer. This is a fundamental and Massive change to their relationship. Something precious has been lost in the nation of Israel and they don't even seem to care. What we see here is when we place anything above God and give it our ultimate loyalty, when we want that thing to give us security more than God himself, something precious is lost in our relationship with God because it's not actually a relationship with God. We're treating him like a widget. And even after these warnings, we read in verse 19 and 22, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, no, there shall be a king over us that we may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. Now, we should step back and ask the main question. God, why did you grant them the request for a king? God, why did you grant them the request for a king? What astonishes me in this text is how God chooses the path of rejection to bring about salvation. God chooses the path of rejection to bring about salvation. By asking for a king, Israel has rejected God as king. And yet God gives them what they ask. And he'll even use it to bring about their salvation because God already has in mind the promise he will make to King David. That there will one one day be an eternal king who will sit on this throne. Through many earthly kings, he'll bring an eternal king into the world. John Piper is a very tame pastor and author. Uh, (laughs) Some Christian joke. <laughs> I, I don't know. The pastor and author John Piper writes, we should learn from God's way of installing a human king that his purposes are to inaugurate a line of human kings 
who would all fail until the king came who was not only man, but also God. For only God can be king of Israel. Piper nails it. Every king of Israel, no matter how good, no matter how noble, despite all the best intentions, failed in some capacity, even David. At their best, even in their most notable moments, the best kings of Israel were merely a shadow of the true king. Because only God himself can deliver them as king, and he'll do so by sending his son into the world to be the true king of Israel. And yet, in an all-too-familiar pattern, the nation of Israel largely rejected Jesus because he claimed to be God and to be Messiah, the true king. As the saying goes, like father, like son, Jesus, too, walks down the path of rejection to bring about salvation. Let's consider Samuel's warning once more. He said to Israel, if you do this, if you reject God, you'll cry out and he won't answer you. And yet God surprises us with grace. Because throughout the rest of Samuel and 2 Samuel and 1 Kings and 2 Kings and all the prophets in exile, God continues to answer their cries. He continues to work for their redemption even when they reject them. He continues to answer their unspoken cries. He continues to love his people even in judgment. They deserve radio silence. That's what Samuel's saying. They deserve separation. They deserve to live in the consequences of what they've chosen. They should live in obeying their own voices and wreak the havoc that is coming to them. But instead, the true king will stand in their praise. Jesus is rejected and crucified, and from the cross, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God doesn't answer. We see that God allows Jesus to face the consequences of our sins, to bear the separation from God because God chooses the way of rejection to bring about our salvation. Jesus' cries weren't answered so that our cries can be. And he frees us on the cross from our slavery to sin. He frees us from being entrapped to doing what is right in our own eyes. He secures us in a relationship with God. And he secures us a place in eternity with God. If we cry out to Jesus, have mercy on us, he has mercy. God answers because the Son bore our rejection for us. Friends, we simply need to assess what we're holding in our hands. Are you willing to open up your hands and lay down everything before God and say, Lord Jesus, be my king. Lord Jesus, provide for me. Lord Jesus, be my security. And here's the good news. Your whole life, you may have spent it rejecting God and his ways. And God is so merciful and good that he will walk down that path of rejection with you to work about your salvation. He is not so far from you as not to be discovered, but he is here right now. So if you've rejected him, all you have to do is say, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, the sinner.